And this morning, um, we're reading from Luke chapter 22. And we're reading from the church Bibles. That's the Red Bible. Um, and if you uh, have, if you would like one of these, we've got a we've got a number over here who are going to be handed to you. Maureen can pass you one. Pop your hand in the air, and it's page one zero five eight one zero five eight. We're in Luke twenty two, and we're going to read from verse thirty nine down to verse fifty three. Verse 39 to 53. So 1058 is the page number. Luke 22, verse 39. It's great that you younger folks can be in here to listen to this part of the account as well. So let's read it together. I'll read it to you, but do follow the words. And this is the passage that Phil is going to be speaking to us from in a few minutes' time. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion? that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Well, that's our passage for this morning and Phil has been praying through the week and preparing and we're looking forward to hear as we read this passage again and study through it together later on this morning. If we could turn our Bibles to that passage, we're going to look at it now together. When I was a student, I decided with all the spare time on my hands, I'd learn how to play the guitar. It took me about a a year uh, to reach the point where I thought I was pretty good. And eventually my improvement was such that I believed I owed it to the world, and in particular my housemates, to show them how good I'd got. They remember it as a low point in the house, because I would wander around the house in my pyjamas with a rickety old borrowed guitar, 
and serenade whoever was nearest with a new riff or, or a chord or a song I'd recently learnt. The low point was when I discovered the music of Simon and Garfunkel and felt that my voice complemented it, uh, their, their sound. I believed I was good, actually probably a bit better than good. I was gifted. I was under that impression for a while till one day I decided to listen to myself play. Yes, I felt I owed it to the world as well to make a demo tape. And I distinctly remember in the middle of that demo tape thinking, this guy is good. But as so often happens with these things, when I played the tape back, yes, it was as old as that, tapes, not anything else, then the truth hit me. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Actually, I was pretty poor at playing the guitar and wondered how those around me could have possibly put up with it for so long. I really thought I was way better than I really was, and it was a shock to find out the truth. Why do I start with this story? I start with this story because it illustrates why Luke records these events that we've just read in the Bible. You see, just as I thought wrongly that I was really good at the guitar, well, most of us, most of the time, wrongly think of ourselves in our characters, in our inherent goodness, as way better before God than we actually are. And just like my opinion of my guitar playing actually became a source of frustration and, and possibly even, uh, even a bit of tension in the house for my housemates, so too our wrong opinions about ourselves actually cause a breakdown in our relationship with God. Because the truth is, when we play the demo tape of our lives back in our heads, we are not as good as we think we are. Actually, the truth is, we are way worse than we could ever imagine. And Luke wants us to see that. That's why he gives us this detail of Jesus' agony in the garden. Luke wants us to see how wrong our thinking is. He wants us to see what it took to make us right with God. So he invites us to witness this intimate account of Jesus in the grip of agony, in the the hands of a betrayer. And he wants us to see it so that we are not just spectators, but we see ourselves as participators in this garden narrative. Participators, because it's our sin that causes this agony, and our sin that moves God to act in this way, to save, to rescue, to redeem us from the awful punishment that we deserve. And I do hope that we'll see that this morning. So let's turn to our passage. And the first thing I want to say is that the, the, I want to point out the cause of Jesus' agony, the cause of Jesus' agony, which is the wrath of God. So our passage begins just after the Last Supper. There Jesus had been preparing his disciples for his his imminent death. And now he leads them out to the Mount of Olives where he knows he's going to be betrayed. Luke's tone begins to have a sense of the inevitable about it. Something's wrong. Jesus is troubled. So look at verse 39 and 40. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. It's, it's an odd instru- instruction to give 
But Jesus instructs them because he wants them to realize the reality of their situation. So his disciples had been put on Satan's hit list. Jesus told them that back in the upper room in verse 31. He told them that Satan was going to sift them all like wheat. And then later on in verse 53, at the end of our passage we just read, Jesus describes this hour as an hour that belongs to his opponents and the power of darkness. So he knows his disciples are vulnerable in all sorts of ways to all sorts of attacks against their faith and their lives. And that's why he's saying to his disciples, guys, you need to pray. This is a dark hour. This is a desperate situation. You are going to be sifted. There is going to be an attack by the devil on your lives. And again, verse 46, he says it again, doesn't he? Get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. That's how desperate Jesus is. But then in the middle of this, verse 39 and 46, those brackets about prayer, Jesus himself goes to pray. And he distances himself from his disciples and begins to pray himself. And whereas his disciples were to pray about their deliverance from the work of the devil... Jesus prays that he would be delivered into the hands of God's will. It's a stark contrast, isn't it? Pray that you would not fall into temptation, and then Jesus prays for himself to be given into the hands of God's will. Look at verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's one of the most intimate verses, most intimate pictures of Jesus in the Bible. He's in exceptional turmoil. He prays from the depths of his heart. He knows what's about to happen, and the agony is consuming him. And he prays here because he needs the help of the Father to do what he's been called to do. In his soul, he could not do this by himself. And in his physical weakness, he needed the strengthening of the angel. And in his isolation, he needed the communion of his beloved Father. In this, the most spiritually dark hour of history. And we can see how much Jesus is suffering at this point by comparing how Jesus responded to previous extreme situations. He'd been in a storm that nearly killed him and his disciples. His opponents had tried to track him with quick fire trick questions. At one point, a crowd uh, comes to take him and, and throw him off the edge of a cliff because he claimed to be the Messiah. And yet in those extreme situations, he goes to the front of the boat and says to the storm, that's enough, be still. He, he gets to the edge of the cliff and he turns around and walks through the crowd. And all those trick questions, he handles them with ease and shames his opponents. He deals with those extreme situations with divine serenity. Even when Jesus is, 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 is talking to the devil himself, Satan, he quotes God's word and the devil has to flee. When we look at Jesus' life previous to this event, he is not moved by extremity. But here, he's broken. 
he's emotionally overwhelmed. Physically, it seems as though the prospect of what he's going through would break him. He's sweating drops of blood. Why such agony? Because he's about to carry and take the full wrath of God. Look at what he asks the Father again in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays that God would take this cup from him, should he be willing. What does he mean by that? Well, it's a reference to a whole host of Old Testament quotes that uses the image of a cup to speak of God's holy and righteous anger, his wrath, poured out on unrepentant sinners. Jeremiah 25, verse 15, is particularly graphic. Let me read it to you. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. So the cup that Jesus is speaking on, it, it, speaking of, it, it is a sense of stored up punishment, of anger, of wrath at sin, that when the time comes is poured out in all its fullness as an act of justice against all that has been, all, all that, that has offended God. And you've got to see the contrast here. Jesus has just sat down at a table with his disciples, put a cup before them, and said, gentlemen, I'm going to drink this cup once more with you when the future glory of the kingdom of God comes. We will celebrate with this cup. It will be a joyous moment. This cup will be full and it shall overflow. It will be wonderful and glorious and we will rejoice forever and ever and ever and ever. This cup of the new kingdom shall gather us together and we will be blessed. I will drink it one day. I promise you when I return. And this cup that Jesus drinks is a cup of scattering. It's a cup of curse. Rather than be filled with joy and blessing, it is poured out with wrath and curse. That is why Jesus begs his father that he doesn't take and drink this cup. Do you see the contrast? Jesus asked God to remove that cup and he doesn't ask because he doesn't want to drink it. He asks because he knows the enormity of what he's about to take. God's wrath at the sin of the world was about to be poured out on one single individual, Jesus Christ, God the Son. There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It tells us what this, it tells us what is about to happen. It says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. 
In other words, the agony that Jesus was going through was the agony of hell itself. As he prays, Jesus begins to take on the wrath of God, the anger that God feels against sin. And over the course of the next day, he takes all of it. As though God's anger was boiled down to a concentrated wine, a ferocious strength, a great focus of massive moral judgment. Every sin was laid on him, and he became sin for us. That's why Jesus needed strengthening. That's why he needed to pray to his Father. He was going to drain the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. And we have to ask why. This wasn't just a a, a random act in a play. The reason for Jesus' agony, and this is second point, the reason for Jesus' agony is to provide a way for sinners like us to be forgiven. Look at the way in which Jesus finishes his prayer. He's not going to rebel against the Father. That's why he says those humbling words, yet not my will but yours be done. In other words, this was God's plan for the world. God wanted this moment to happen in history. And before we think God was vindictive to treat his son like this, we have to remember that the reason why was this was the Father's will. And because, uh, and the, uh, the reason why, this, this was the Father's will, and there was no other way to deal with sin. That there's not a sense in which God the Father was pouring out his wrath with vengeful glee on his whimpering son. He heard the prayer of his son. God the Father was there in the garden with his son. And he was listening to the agony of his boy. And yet he kept pouring out his wrath. God the Father's heart was breaking because of the darkness that he was pouring out on his son. Why? There was no other way. And that's why it's so offensive. It really is offensive to say that there are many ways to God. Because if there is another way, why is Jesus suffering? Why is God the Father's heart breaking? Don't even try to think we can earn our righteousness or cancel out our own sin or pray to a saint for their special blessing or even to Mother Mary for her special blessing. That's not going to deal with our sin. There is no other way. God the Father's plan was the only way we can deal with our sin. Let's not believe anything else. Jesus had to walk this path. And he does it willingly. Because of his love for sinners like us. He opened a way so that you and I could be right with God. He takes the punishment. No one else, no, no, one, no other thing can. And how much, therefore, do we need to read about Jesus' agony 
here because we don't often consider what it took God to deal with our sin. In in other words, by nature, what we do is we're quick to think, actually, we're not all that bad. We we dumb down our badness. And actually, we we dumb down God's holiness. So we think, oh, he's, he's a nice bloke. God, God can, you know, God can kind of sweep all my bad stuff under the carpet. We'll be mates when we meet. But by nature, we, we ignore the fact that there are consequences to our sin. But however small we think our sin is, however we justify our sin, however the good excuse is for our sin, or however it's right to blame others for our sin, the reality is this, the heart attitude behind sin is ours. Every time we sin, what we're doing is we are expressing what we really think about God. What we really feel about him. Each time we sin, we, ha- we send a message that flies to the throne room of God. And it's a rebellious message. And it says, God. Stuff you. Stuff your rules. Stuff your ways. Stuff your authority. I want to live my way under my rules under my authority, and I don't care. That's the heart attitude behind every sin. That is why God is so holily wrathful, angry at our attitude. Because every time we sin, it's an act of rebellion against God and his authority. And when we realize that, we realize God's anger here is right. And Christ's sacrifice is great. And I hope, therefore, we begin to see God's love for this world is massive. That God would be willing to give his son. Can you imagine it? That God would be willing to give his son. Totally undeserving. That God the son would be willing to come to this world and enjoy the father's, endure the father's wrath. There's a great verse in, in Romans 5 verse 8. It's this. It's the God demonstrates his love for us in this. That whilst we were yet sinners. Isn't that incredible? We wake up in the morning. Before we've had the shower. We've already shouted at the children. We've already sworn because the milk's just that slightly bit off on our cornflakes. We've already thrown our toothbrush at the wall in anger while we were still sinners. It doesn't take us an hour to demonstrate our, our, our sinfulness, our rebelliousness before God every day. And yet in that state, in that sinful, rebellious state, Christ dies for us. That is God's demonstration of his love. Isn't that amazing?
Christ takes this wrath of God for us. God opens up this way for relationship with us. This way. That is God's love. That is his demonstration of God's love. Let's not believe that God is some nice, whiffly, white-bearded old man on the clouds doing nothing but plucking a harp saying, Oh, I love you people. Well done. No, no, God comes into this world. He rolls up his sleeves and he immerses himself up to his neck in our muck so that we might know him. That is God's love. It's demonstrable. It's active. It's in our faces here in the garden. God loves us. And Luke wants us to see that by sharing this 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 intimate account with us. And perhaps we need to think through it more. I realize that maybe for some of us here, this is the first time you're hearing about what Jesus endured in the garden. This, is a, this might be the first time you're hearing that God is angry at our sin. I get it. Think through it. It might be that we're in rebellion against God. That we're doing God our own way. We're saying to God, stuff you. And we're resenting God. God, you don't do things my way. I really get annoyed with that, let me just say. Well, consider the sweat drops of Christ. Agonizing because of the heart of our rebellion. I hope it humbles us. I hope it even shames us. I hope it challenges our sin at every level and makes us want to turn in repentance and obedience and love for him who loves us. That's the invitation here. Perhaps we need to think it through more and and, and confess how often we say stuff you to God and submit to to, to the loving heart of Christ that broke in this garden that night for us and for this world to open a way for us to know God the Father. Why the agony? Because God provides a way for sinners to be forgiven. Isn't that humbling? And who benefits? Well, this is our last point. The beneficiaries, please forgive that long word. It just means the people who benefit, but I just couldn't think of a better word for it. The beneficiaries of Jesus' agony are sinners like us. You know, there's a, there's a, a change of pace in the last section of our passage. You know, that, that moment in the garden, it's like time stops and, and, and details are, are just outlined. And, and then Luke suddenly goes back to normal time and, and the pace quickens and the events come quick and fast. The last section of the, 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 the passage this morning, it, it just, it just outlines the kinds of people who need Jesus' death and Jesus' saving work. And, and there are kind of three action clips. So, so um, the first action clip is Judas' betrayal of Jesus with a kiss. Verse 47, while he was still, still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. 
He drew near to Judas to kiss, to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus, Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So you've got one of his closest disciples, and his closest disciple, one of his closest disciples leads Jesus' enemies to him. He'd hardened his heart to the point where he was happy to hand over the Son of God to death. It's shocking, isn't it? The second action clip is the, uh, is the disciples' ongoing misunderstanding of what Jesus' kingdom is about. They're fearful. Uh, verse 49, when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched the ear and healed him. It, it's a measure of the fear and confusion going on in the garden. They're, they're trying to fight their way out of it. And it's interesting because for the previous three years, they'd never used violence. They'd never even considered violence. It was never necessary. And Jesus' response to their violence shows how out of kilter it is because he, he, he goes to the, the high priest's servant and he heals that ear and says, that's enough. Stop it. I'm here to sacrifice, not to enforce. Isn't that amazing? And then the third clip is where Jesus rebukes the authorities for their abuse of power. It's incredible, isn't it? At the point of his, at the point of his, uh, his arrest, he, he's, he's the one in authority. And he takes these guys aside, like a, like a headmaster drawing a bunch of naughty schoolboys into, in, into his study. And he says, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come, come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Really? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, isn't it? And the power of darkness. Luke reminds us here of the work of the devil. It's not just the chief priests and the elders and the temple guards. There is a spiritual darkness here. It's an indirect reference, but it's still there. Satan is working to make all this happen. His reign is the reign of darkness. And the chief priests and Judas and everyone there are inadvertently doing his bidding. And these three action clips are here because they, they represent sinful human nature responding to Jesus the King. Do you see the contrast? Jesus the King prays in the garden. Jesus the King amongst human people, uh, uh, human sinners like you and me. And when we step back from these three action clips, we see that Jesus is the center of this passage. Everyone else is acting out of sinful response. Judas is turned. The disciples are fearful. The authorities are, 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 are abusing their authority. But at the heart of it, Jesus is in control. He's not running. He's not fighting. He's not manipulating the circumstances, abusing his authority. No. He has come to give his life as a sacrifice for you and me. We need a saviour like Jesus, who loves and gives and sacrifices. 
So looking back at all that we've seen this morning, I imagine, of us, I imagine that some of us might be shocked to hear how much we need Jesus. But you know, we do need to be shocked sometimes. I'm not going to make an apology for it. We need to be shocked out of our wrong thinking about God. We need to hear this just as badly as student me needed to hear I was really rubbish at guitar. It's a reality check. It's a wake-up call because all of us are rebels and deserve only judgment. We need a saviour. And in the light of our need, I hope that we see all the more clearly, all the more wonderfully, Jesus loves us. You and me, sinners, in the hands of an angry God who need Jesus to deal with our sin. And I want us to see that Jesus stayed in that garden. He didn't run. He didn't fight his way out. Isn't that a demonstration of his love for us? Because he gives himself to rescue. That old, old, old children's song says it all. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. How do we we respond? I think with humility and gratefulness. To see God loves us. God really, really loves us passionately and wonderfully. And, and, and if our hearts are softened, are hardened to that, well, may they be softened. Just by the sight of God the Son weeping in the garden. As he gives his life to take the wrath of God for us. It might be that this morning our hearts are actually broken. That we've seen this portrait and we're thinking, Lord God, what do I do? What do I do? A sinner like me, having come under the the, the love of God like yours, what do I do? It's it's right to cry out to him. It's right to cry out to him and and ask him to to embrace your sin. To take our sin away from him and and to immerse ourselves in, in the glorious love of Christ. To run to him and say... Lord God, I know you have made a way that I might be your child. Let me be your child so that we might live in relationship forever and ever and ever because I knew Jesus, I know Jesus drank that cup of your wrath so I might drink the cup of the fullness of the glory of God when Jesus returns. May that be my, may that be the cup I look forward to as well. To run to him. Do you know, if we're betraying him right now in our sinful hearts, in a way that we don't want anyone else to know, do you know, Jesus, Jesus simply says, confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Confession is simply going home today, going to your room or, or a quiet place, locking the door and just saying, Lord Jesus Christ, please forgive me. I've done this, I've done that, I've sinned in this way, my heart is so rebellious, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know you love me because the Bible tells me you love me, please forgive me. And here is the hope, Jesus loves sinners like us. That is why there is hope in this darkest hour in the garden. And the hope is that simply this, Jesus endured this cup 
that we might not have to. And the invitation is that we might know God personally, intimately, lovingly. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? Let's pray now. Father God, we see in this account from your word, God the Son enduring the wrath of God the Father at our sin. Lord, we front up with you now all that we have done against you in the rebellion of our hearts, in the attitude behind every sin. We have sinned and we are sorry. Lord God, we are so humbled and grateful that Jesus endured this cup that we might not have to. We are humble and grateful that Jesus, in total control of this scene in the garden before, uh, during his arrest, that he didn't run, he didn't fight. He forgave and loved and sacrificed that we might know your love. Therefore, Lord God, we ask this morning that you would forgive us. That you would take away our sin because it has been laid on Jesus Christ, God the Son. So that we might enjoy your love And one day see you face to face. And there will be no anger. There will be no sin on that day. There will be joy and peace. Everlasting. Oh Lord God. We thank you for this picture. For this account. May we be forever humbled. May we be struck at the cost that you paid to take away our sin. And in being so struck, may we walk with you even today, humbly and worshipfully for your glory's sake. Amen.